there are two readings. The first one is in Numbers 21. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. So page 158 in the Red Bibles. And it is Numbers 21, verses 1 to 9. Page 158. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And the second reading is in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. It's on page um, 1066. 1066. Um, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. John 3, verse 14. And this is Jesus speaking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service. We seem to have a sparse congregation this morning because of the conference in Kilkenny, but uh, the important people are here, so you're all very welcome. Before I begin, John Horan has asked me to thank you for your prayers and your visits. As you know, he's in the hospice in Harles Cross, 
and he asked me to say how grateful he is for those of you who have visited him. He, I think he holds the record in Harl's Cross for visits, and uh, he's very grateful for all your kindness and especially for your prayers. I know many of you have been praying for him. Now, let's turn in the Word of God to what we have just read, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And I hope you'll be able to keep your Bibles open as we look at this passage, Numbers 21, especially verses 4 to 9. There are probably few things that are so intensely disliked and feared as snakes. When I was teaching in the Bible College in Africa, we once had a visit from a dangerous snake. The gardener spotted a boomslang in a tree beside the library. We had been going back and forward under that tree for the morning, and the gardener spotted the boomslang at lunchtime. Thankfully, we had a man in our town who dealt with snakes, and he was called. He caught the snake, and took it away, and before he took it away, he, examined, he explained to us that one drop of the snake's venom was enough to kill four, four people. We're happy that our incident with the snake at college was over in an hour, and all was quickly back to normal again. But it certainly wasn't like that for the Israelites here in Numbers 21. As they journeyed through the desert, the problem was not just one snake, but thousands of them biting and killing many of the people. Even though we don't have snakes in Ireland, though you could check under your chair, um, there are many lessons that we can learn from this story in the Bible in Numbers 21. But let's look at the setting of the story here in Hebrews, or in Numbers. The people of Israel had been traveling through the desert for almost 40 years, and they were near the promised land. The chapter begins with blessing and victory for God's people over their enemies. But the people quickly forgot God's goodness and the gift of the victory that God had given them. And we see them here grumbling, bitter, resentful, ungrateful, despising Moses and insulting and dishonoring God how quickly they go from blessing to sinning against God. But isn't that the way with us as well sometimes? How quickly we go from blessing to sinning. Our lives seem to follow a cycle of ups and downs, of good times and bad times. Times of blessing followed by times of failure and sin, which in turn leads to chastisement and correction by God until we repent and return. 
We see this throughout the Old Testament history again and again, especially in books like Judges and so on. So when you come to think about it, we who are God's people today, we're not really that much different from Israel in this story. Do we not bring pain and chastisement upon ourselves because of our sins? And in our case too, God must rescue us and restore us time and time again. So let's trace Israel's downfall here and see how God rescued them. Let's look first of all at their sins, which probably happen to be our sins as well, as we shall see. In verse 3, we read that the Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. But how quickly they forgot that this victory over Arad was a gift from God. It was what they prayed for. And God gave it to them. But they forgot. And they forgot so many things. They forgot the rescue from Egypt. They forgot the dividing of the Red Sea. They forgot the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. They forgot the manna which God had given them from heaven. They forgot the water from the rock. God had given them one blessing after another. But how quickly they forgot. How could they forget such things? Look at their attitude in verses 4 and 5. We read... They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against Moses and against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Their attitude is despicable. They forget the blessings which God had showered upon them. Are you guilty of forgetfulness? As you look back over your life, I'm sure you have forgotten many of the good gifts that God has given to you. Have you forgotten, perhaps, family background which was conducive to a Christian life? Have you forgot the gift of family, education? Have you forgotten the health that God has given to you over the years, the possessions, the times he has rescued you in difficulty, the protection he has afforded you? Have you forgotten the goodness and kindness of friends? Have you forgotten the times he healed you when you were ill, and the many answers to prayer that you received. How easy it is to forget these things, to be guilty of forgetfulness before God. Like Israel, 
Perhaps you've begun to think that these things that have been in your life are your own achievements and forget that they are the gifts of God requiring thankfulness and gratitude. And so their first sin was forgetfulness of the blessings and goodness of God. And then we see also in verse 4 that forgetfulness led to impatience. Impatience with God, impatience with Moses, impatience with their situation. A sinful impatience. Are you an impatient person? I must hold up my hands here. You know, we who are impatient, we fool ourselves into thinking that impatience is a kind of virtue. Impatient people, they get things done. They take initiative. They're more courageous than others and so on. That's a load of rubbish. Impatience is a sin. It springs from pride, from selfishness. We become irritable with those around us, with family and colleagues. Everybody must jump to our agenda. Who were the Israelites impatient with? Why were they impatient? They were impatient with God because they had been 40 years in the desert now and they thought it was time they were in the promised land. But what had kept them from the promised land? It wasn't God. No, it was their own sins and their own rebellion against God. And that's what makes impatience so serious. We want to hurry God up. We're not happy with the way he's sorting out our life. We think he's restricting us. We think he should have done more for us than he has done, and so on. Impatience with God. We want him to move to our agenda. We want to control everything. But life is not all about us. Life is really about God and his plans and his glory. So, together, let's admit our impatience as sin and repent of it. The people's impatience here in verse 4 also led to complaining. And we see their, lists of, their list of complaints in verse 5. They complain, first of all, about being rescued from Egypt. What? Being rescued from Egypt? Surely they were, they were slaves in Egypt. How could it be better for them to stay in Egypt? But yes, they do. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? You know, sometimes as Christians, that's a complaint we also make against God. Sometimes we say, Lord, it was better in Egypt. It was better before I was converted. It was better before I knew you. And now I have all kinds of problems and difficulties. And so just like them, we complain about being delivered from Egypt.
they complained also about the manna, which God had so graciously given them from heaven, food for 40 years, food that tasted good, food that they didn't have to do anything with, only eat. And yet they called it this miserable food. And as they complained, they also thought about the future. And they were so pessimistic about the future. Look what they said. They said, we're all going to die in this desert. So complaining is a very serious sin. And complaining spreads negativism and pessimism among the people of God. Are you a complainer? God says in his word, in everything, give thanks. Do everything, Paul says in Ephesians, without arguing and complaining, so that you may be the children of God in an evil world. What are you complaining about this morning? Certainly not the weather, I hope. Are you complaining about the difficulties that you have in your life, about the circumstances that you're encountering, or maybe just about the fact that one of the apps on your smartphone is not working? We complain about such trivial things, and we make such a meal out of them. Spare a thought this morning for your brothers and sisters in Muslim and Hindu countries who are constantly harassed for their faith, who for them going to church this morning might mean arrest or even cost them their lives. And they are our brothers and sisters, and I hope we pray for them. And yet we complain constantly about the most trivial things. And sometimes we even complain against God and what he is doing in our lives. The Israelites complained and spoke against God and his servant Moses. And their attitude towards God was disrespectful, defiant even, hostile. And that kind of talk brings God's judgment as we see here. Before we look further in the story, let's examine our own hearts for these sins. Forgetfulness, impatience, complaining, being disrespectful to God, and even criticizing God's people, God's church. Let's repent of these things. Let's turn away from them. Let's set our own hearts in order before God. But then we move on to a more positive part of the story. In verse 7, we see repentance in the second place. We see repentance and rescue here in verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses 
prayed for the people. Here we see a great change in the attitude of the people. They recognized that they had sinned. They recognized that their forgetfulness and their ingratitude and their impatience and their disrespectfulness were serious sins in the sight of God. And they repented. And they turned back to Moses and to God and asked for prayer and asked for deliverance. Affliction brings them to their Like the prodigal son, they turn back to the one they have offended and they plead for mercy. And so Moses prayed for the people as he had prayed many times before. And God in his great mercy answered their prayers. But in a most unusual way. Moses was told to make an image of a snake. So, even though the plague was spreading very quickly, Moses must take time to organize for the making of a metal image of one of the poisonous snakes. This was the only way. It must be done God's way, even though it took time. And this command to make a metal image must have surprised Moses for several reasons. First of all, to make a graven image of a creature was forbidden in the second commandment, especially if people were to look at it and to pay some kind of respect to it. And a snake on a pole would remind the Israelites of the gods of Egypt because in Egypt, snakes were deified and worshipped as gods. And then, of course, Moses knew that Satan himself had appeared as a snake in the book of Genesis. And later in the Bible, he's called that ancient serpent the devil. So Moses must have had his doubts as he set about this task. But it was God's command, and therefore Moses obeyed. It's interesting to note that this bronze snake, after this episode was all over, this bronze snake was kept by the people and later on was even worshipped and people offered incense to it and treated it as a kind of holy relic. And later on, King Hezekiah, godly King Hezekiah, had it totally destroyed. How prone is the human heart to idolatry? When we consider these things, we see that Moses was being asked to do something very strange indeed. Humanly speaking, it made no sense. How could a lifeless metal creature on a pole help people who were dying? But then, come to think of it, the cross of Jesus also made no sense. How could a dying man save people who were dying in their sins? Paul told the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, but it doesn't make sense. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. 
And so, you see, both events defy human wisdom. Yet, both events display the wisdom and power of God, the great God of glory, who saves people through the death of his own Son. But let's notice in the story here what God did not do. God did not remove the snakes. The people continued to grow ill and die. God did not prescribe medicine for the snakes, for the snake bites. No, God saved them in such a way as to set up for all time an illustration of salvation by grace through faith. Let me say that again. God saved them in such a way as to set up for all time an illustration of salvation by grace through faith. In the third place, God wanted to show that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. How do we know this? Well, we know this because of what Jesus said in the passage that Valerie read from John 3. Jesus said in John 3, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus compares the lifting up of the snake by Moses with the lifting up of himself on the cross at Calvary. Finally, I want to draw your attention to four parallels between Israel and us. You will have noticed many parallels, I'm sure, already. Their sins and our sins, their faith and our faith, and so on. But I want to mention four of these parallels between their situation and ours. First of all, in both cases, we see that sin is serious. Sin is serious. And it brings God's judgment. They forgot God's blessings. They did not give thanks to God. They were impatient, complaining, lacking in respect for God and his servants. And if you think these things are not serious, you don't see any reason why you should be thankful. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, the second half of the chapter has this title, God's Wrath Against Mankind. And in this second half of Romans 1, we have some of the most horrible and despicable sins that are known in the human race. And God's judgment comes upon the human race because of these sins. Let me read from verse 18 for a moment. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
But then let's go down to verse 21. As God begins to identify the particularly heinous and awful sins of the human race, this is what he says. For although they knew God, they neither worshipped him as God nor gave thanks to him. So here are two sins that come at the beginning of this long and terrible list. First of all, they didn't glorify him as God. And secondly, they did not give thanks to him. So ungodly people are condemned for these two things, that they don't recognize God as God. And that's what the Israelites did in, in the desert. They didn't recognize God as God. They complained to him as if he were just an earthly master and they needed a change of food. They did not give reverence and respect to him as God. And that is the central sin of the human race, that they do not glorify God as God. And the second sin that is right at the top of this horrible list is they did not give thanks to him. They did not give thanks to him. Why is thanksgiving such a terrible sin? It is such a terrible sin because everything that you are and everything that you have comes from God. You live because God is good. You live because God is good to you. And therefore, the natural reaction in your heart should be to give thanks to God continually for the air you breathe, for the blood that flows through your veins, for the food that you eat, for everything that God has given to you. You should give thanks. So there in Romans 1, we see the seriousness of the sin of ingratitude and unthankfulness. But the second parallel that we see here is that we need to repent just as they did. Sometimes our hearts are hard. We don't repent. We keep on sinning. We have bad attitudes. We keep on doing the wrong thing until the snakes start to bite. And it's only then that we come to repentance. We push God, as it were, as far as possible. When Jesus began to preach, his first words were, repent and believe the good news. And repentance has always been a central doctrine of the Christian faith, and we must not neglect it. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Germany, in 15 and 17, the very first statement which he nailed up to the door was this. When the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel says, repent, he means the whole life of the believer to be one of repentance. Yes, every day we should be repenting. Repenting not just of the sins that we think we have, but repenting of attitudes, of our impatience, of our complaining, 
of our ingratitude and of our lack of thankfulness to God. The third parallel we see here between them and us is helplessness. These people were helpless. Helpless to save themselves. Dying in pain with no cure and no hope. But it is here that we see the grace of God. He could have left them to die. They deserved to die. But God had mercy. And God always responds to repentance. That is the precious hope that we have in our sin. That when we repent, God always responds. When we cry out to him, he hears us and he delivers us. And so we too are powerless. We too are powerless to save ourselves from the anger of God. Powerless to help ourselves in our sin and in our need. We must look away from ourselves. There's nothing in us or nothing around us. No one can help us. When we're dying in our sins, we must look away to the cross of Christ. And this is the final parallel that we see here, that faith alone is the link to salvation. Faith alone is the link to salvation. It's only by looking to the one lifted up that we can be saved. We have no merits, no resources. It's by looking that we are rescued, by faith looking to him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Looking to Jesus by faith. As the people were dying in the desert, they looked away to the snake on the pole. And even though it didn't make any sense, just seeing that snake and looking to it and believing the word of God, that this was God's cure, looking to it brought healing to their bodies. And so, because God has commanded it, we too must look to Christ, and he brings life and healing and forgiveness to us. He was lifted up for us upon the cross. You know, God deals with each of us personally. In the desert when the people were dying, a brother could not look to the snake in order to save his sister. A parent could not look to the snake in order to save his child. Each one must look personally for himself and believe. Just because we are among the people of God doesn't mean that God is mercifully disposed towards us. Each of us must look for himself, for herself, and believe in the Lord Jesus. This is a remarkable story. And in it we have basically just two things. First of all, we see ourselves, our helplessness, our sin, the spreading poison of sin, which is slowly killing us. And then in the second place, we see our salvation, our rescue by grace, by the mercy and compassion of God, by faith, not by our efforts, but by looking away to the one lifted up on the cross of Calvary. Let me ask you this morning, have you looked 
Faith alone, in Christ alone, brings God's rescue to us. There's an old hymn, and it says it all. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look, unto him and be saved, unto him who was nailed to the tree. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we come this morning before you as sinners who deserve your wrath and your anger upon us. We have neglected to worship you as we should. We have not shown you reverence and respect. We have not thanked you for all the many gifts you have given to us. Lord, we have been impatient. We have thought that our agenda was more important than yours. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. We thank you that just as there was a cure for the bites that the Israelites received for the snake bites in the desert, so there is a cure for our illness too and for the sin which brings eternal death. We thank you for Jesus lifted up for us. We pray that we may put our trust and faith in him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our final song is Praise the Name, O Praise the Name of Jesus. <clears throat>